0: Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, managing editor of wealthmanagement.com. And in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast and thanks for joining us today. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor, personal development and healing. And today's guest knows a thing or two about those. His name is Jeff Martinovich. He's a First goal 4 veteran. He's the CEO of Jam Accelerator, a business consulting and incubation firm. And he's the former founder and CEO of MICG Investment Management. A billion-dollar wealth management firm. He's also the author of Just One More, The Wisdom of Bob Vukovic, and he's just recently launched a speaking and consulting firm to help uh, CEOs, business owners, and entrepreneurs uh, not suffer the the same mistakes he's made and um, help them when they're faced with any types of perils. Um, You can find more information about that at spreadingthejam.com. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Diana. My pleasure.
0: So a little bit of background about Jeff. In 2011, Jeff was barred by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority from any role in selling securities or associating with FINRA members. And he's currently serving a 16-year prison sentence. He has about two and a half years more on home confinement in Norfolk, Virginia. He's got an ankle monitor on his left ankle that keeps tabs on his movements. And he's gonna tell us the whole story in just a minute. But I have to give a shout out here to John Cater, one of wealthmanagement.com's longtime contributors for finding Jeff and introducing us. John recently wrote a feature about Jeff's experience, and I'm just going to read a little bit from his uh, story. John writes, Over the years, I've attempted to interview a dozen or so white-collar felons. None agreed to talk to me. Without exception, the former inmates desperately wanted to put the ordeal of prison behind them. Most were broken physically, mentally, and financially. After completing their sentences, which ranged from 48 to 160 months, most of the ex-inmates I knew were friendless, embittered, and though no longer incarcerated, in many ways still caged by their ordeal. Martinovich is different. A a youthful-looking 55, he's trim and athletic with the clean-cut energy of an overly eager, eager Eagle Scout. He's relentlessly upbeat, remarkably Since his release from prison, Martinovich has reconnected with his family, remarried, and is working as a management consultant, though he has been barred by FINRA from any role in selling securities or associating with FINRA members. Martinovich refuses to be defined by his losses, and those losses are considerable. In addition to the nearly seven years in prison, he lost the company he founded, his first marriage, his reputation among many, but not all of his peers, his board assignments, his charitable honors, his wealth, his homes, and the Las Vegas vacations—the excesses of which the government used as evidence of his wrongdoing. Wow, Jeff. Um, so, I mean, I really thank you know, thank you for being on the podcast. Um, I wanted to step back. You've got quite a story, and um, you know, I know just such a positive attitude after talking to you. Um, and after all you've been through, it's it's amazing. Um, let's step, up, step back and, you know, tell us how you got into the financial services industry. Um, I know you talked to me about having a lawn mowing business when you were a kid.
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: How did you um, sort of get into the...
1: Actually, since you mentioned that, Diana, I uh, was very fortunate. I had about 30 lawns and I was uh, employing my friends. I made a little bit of money and asked my father to recommend one stock and he did and i put it in there and got lucky and doubled my money and i took the money out and i took the cash and bought a 1975 (laughs) Firebird when I was 16 years old. So I was hooked on the financial world from that point forward. And so after attending the Air Force Academy and getting my MBA at night from William and Mary, I wanted to get into the financial world and uh, was very fortunate to join a firm here in Virginia named Wheat First Securities. And it was run by Very, very smart people who did business the right way. And they really Mm -hmm. mentored me and tutored me. And uh, I was able to grow my business from there.
0: Yeah, I know they have a great, uh, great reputation. Um, And so you um, I know that you said that they kind of helped you go out on your own helped you launch your own firm.
1: That's correct. Uh, once we got up to a certain size, they approached me for an opportunity to start our own firm. And we started, hired one person, then an next person And uh, by the time we got to about 2007, uh, we had about a hundred associates in eight branches up and down the East Coast, and we're in most states in the country managing over a billion dollars. Plus, we had a mortgage company, insurance company, wills and trusts, investment banking, and at that time, three small hedge funds. Mm.
0: And so, you know, I know 2007, 2008 was, um, you know, going into the financial crisis, a bit of a rough time for the industry. What was the environment like for broker-dealers like MICG? That's the name of of your firm
1: that you launched, right? Correct. 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 Of course, it was extremely challenging and uh, very scary. And a lot of hand-holding. We had about 3,000 clients at the time. When, when everything started going south, uh, you know, that's when you really step up and, you know, have to work around the clock. And, and fortunately, we had an incredible group of A players, uh, great overachievers in our company. And uh, they did a fantastic job. And we, we weathered the storm through that. And we were fee-based. We weren't really transactional-based. And we had a lot of alternative investments that were doing, you know, okay during that time period. So uh, we made it through that time period, but it was, as you mentioned, it was up after the correction when the regulatory backlash happened from uh, the regulatory agencies is when we started to have all of our trouble.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you know, we all can remember Lehman, Bear Stearns, Bernie Madoff. You know, obviously. Tell me about your experience getting approached by the regulators and, and what happened. What was your impression of what they were trying to accomplish?
1: Well, ironically, right before the crash is the SEC and FINRA had approached us to do what they called a beta test. Um, since we were both a broker dealer and a registered investment advisor, They wanted to try to streamline the compliance process and the exam process, which, of course, you know, made sense to us. And since we had a pretty spotless record for all these years, uh, they approached us and said, hey, can we can we do this new beta test with you? And uh, one of my first mistakes, of which I've made a thousand, was to say, sure, that sounds great. And as they went through the process really right in the middle of all their exams is when everything happened with the market. And then, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, then Bernie Madoff came out. And at that point, uh, the word hedge funds, you know, became the two worst words in the financial dictionary. And we had three hedge funds that we had started more of private equity type funds in private investments. And uh, that's where their uh, attention turned. And really, it became a month after month after month fishing expedition of trying to find something, trying to find. And we knew, as all the business owners know, there would be a list of things, you know, we would have to correct. But at this point, the SEC actually told me by a phone call, hey, they. They really don't want to sign off on the exam because of after Bernie Madoff uh, fooling them for so long, nobody wants to sign off on any exam. So it kept going on and on and on. And yes, then at the end, they said that uh, we had mispriced one stock in one of our hedge funds in prior valuations, although all those valuations were done externally. And so... It wasn't really on my radar screen. It was 0.2 mm-hmm. percent of the assets under management. So uh, you know, I, I should have been paying better attention to that, and it became a a huge ordeal that then you know basically overwhelmed the entire firm.
0: Yeah, and so and it was a solar a solar company, right? The it was it was, it was if
1: you remember back in that 2009 type timeframe. Oh, where like the Obama administration had lost billions on Solyndra and a whole group of other Mm -hmm. solar companies. The The Chinese had kind of flooded the market with cheap solar panels. And so a very promising industry at that time, the US solar industry really took a hit and a ton of companies went out of business. And yes, the one we had did also.
0: Yeah, and so what happened then? Um, I mean, they they did they find you guys, and you know, obviously the the company had to close down, and you were barred, um, and then they took you to trial, right?
1: Well, what how how they kind of do it is uh, they had alleged a lot of things inside the fund and mispricing of of this security. And the honest answer was we had a fleet of attorneys, a fleet of CPAs, a fleet of external valuation experts. And I knew nobody had done anything wrong, certainly not intentionally. And uh, so I kind of refused. And I wanted to go to arbitration. And I uh, was very resistant to what they were trying to accomplish. And remember, at that time, it was Occupy Wall Street. And All the executives on Wall Street, nothing had happened to them. So the public was extremely angry. But what most people don't realize is that the regulators did go around and shut down a great number of what I call tier two companies, and such as our size. Because, you know, we certainly didn't have a checkbook to write a $100 million check. So I basically refused to accept that. And then one day on Friday at about 4 15 in the, on, in the afternoon, FINRA, the regulators, called me and said, well, we've kind of changed gears now. And we've re-audited the last five years of your financials. And we've basically moved millions of dollars of equity from equity side to the liability side, which made no sense to us or all of our attorneys and CPAs. And said, you have 24 hours to deposit cash to make all that great, which, of course, at that time in the middle of, you know, the greatest storm going, uh, nobody was going to have that much cash or lend somebody that much cash, especially when the regulators were really employing a, a big marketing and PR type of campaign against our type of firms. And we're on the front page of the newspaper, you know, basically every day. So. Ironically, it started with the hedge fund type of pricing, but really what happened is they claimed uh, at the end a net capital requirement, and that's how they shut down firms. And basically overnight, uh, after 18 years of incredible success growing at 36% a year average over 18 years, we were shut down.
0: And so I know that you, you, the government came to you with these plea deals, you know, try to get you to uh, plead guilty, and you refused. You rejected three plea deals. What was going through your head? What made
1: you make that decision? Right. I'm, I'm pretty much the only crazy person in the country that would reject three <laughs> federal plea deals. Yeah. Uh, the first one was seven years. Then later, they offered five years. And then then at the end, they offered three years. And uh, again, our attorneys had said there's zero evidence in the discovery, there's zero evidence that we can find of anybody actually doing anything wrong. And you know, I, I went to the Air Force Academy and, and not to be too dramatic about this, but you know we live by the honor code. And uh, yeah, it, it was just this point in my life that I had to make a, you know, a critical life altering decision. The easy path would have been to, you know, accept that. What I didn't realize is I was in the spider web of the system. And what you're supposed to do is you accept the offer. You lose all your money. You lose your reputation. You, you slink away in shame. And that's how this happens. And, you know, i made a choice to stand up for what I believed was right For my employees, for myself, for our company, for our shareholders, and I decided to go to trial against the United States federal government, which I later learned ninety eight point five percent of of all things happen in convictions. So,
0: what was the trial like? Tell us about that experience, and um, you know, how did the prosecution paint you to the jury? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, you know, you certainly. Um, when we were very fortunate to have have a lot of success in our in our Virginia region, and so we're certainly on the front page of the newspaper every day, and the prosecutors certainly do paint you as uh, the worst human that walks the planet. Uh, so mm-hmm. all your charitable work, civic work, uh, employment work, education, everything goes out the window overnight. The great mistake we made was. I believed that in front of a jury of our peers, I would try to explain to them the hedge fund accounting and the valuation experts and everybody that had done all this work externally, all the external auditors. And so we attempted to explain that to the jury while the prosecution spent uh, five weeks of putting up pictures of my automobiles and my homes and they flew in the pit boss from the Bellagio to explain mm. to the jury how much I would bet on blackjack during golf trips with my friends. <laughs> uh, so, so that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's not the way we, as uh, great citizens of the United States, believe it's supposed to work. But it was extremely effective, and. Uh, at the end, even after all that, there was actually a hung jury, but the uh, the judge actually ordered the, them to continue and then eventually they came back with a conviction.
0: Yeah, so I know that um, you know, the federal grand jury returned a criminal indictment of 26 counts, including engaging in monetary transactions in property derived from specific unlawful activity as well as conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud. The specific unlawful activity underlying these charges alleged that MICG assigned unjustifiably high values to the shares of the solar energy company held in one of the firm's hedge funds. And they alleged that the overvaluation inflated your management fee by $140,000. That's from um, John Cater's story. So, but that that wasn't the end of the legal process for you, right? Um, what happened after that right. first sentencing?
1: Well, what what happens when you are convicted? In a cur- course, you don't have the billion dollars anymore, and so you're left to really defend yourself in many situations. And so, I was sent to Fort Dix, New Jersey, a higher security uh, prison. Uh, unlike many of the movies where you see the kind of camps, as they call them. And so uh, that was a pretty scary place. But what I did is I took a job in the prison law library and began to teach myself federal criminal law. So by helping about 300 other inmates with their cases, I was able to learn and learn and learn and try the best I could. And what I did is I submitted about Five, over 500 motions, petitions, actions in my defense representing myself to try and bring the truth to light. And by a lot of good fortune, basically the appeals court reversed uh, the decisions of the trial court twice. Two federal judges were removed from my case I made it out of the higher security prison down to a camp eventually. And then by uh, the time COVID came and, and uh, they, they were releasing certain people to home confinement, because I had made it down to the camp, uh, I was also fortunate to be there. So after nearly the unfortunate part was it was, it was almost a seven year process. Of uh, mm. of a daily war, trying to fight this uh, battle, but but after nearly seven years, I was uh, sent home uh, last year or t- twenty twenty uh, to home confinement, and uh, so uh, it was about seven years early, and so I'm incredibly fortunate uh, to have made it back.
0: Yeah, and tell us a little bit about what life was like in the in the violent prison in New Jersey. I mean, how did you get through that? A hard time. Really well, dark time, I'm sure. You,
1: you know, sure, sure. You, you know, when you're faced with these existential type of moments in our lives, and, and everybody goes through things like this. And, and that's the one thing I always want to stress is, you know, many people have been through much worse and, and many people have been through war. And certainly we see all these terrible things happening today. So I think you have to keep it in perspective. But, but the plan I came up with was, hey, I could, I could end it. I could live in despair and depression and sleep on my metal bunk for 14 years, or I could make a commitment to get stronger every single day. And what I did is, is I made this commitment to get stronger physically, intellectually, and emotionally. And I knew that mm-hmm. if I did that every single day, you know, hey, tomorrow's going to be a little bit better. And and you when you're in prison, it's really a strange dynamic where one day feels as long as a year. But also, mm-hmm. when you look back, that year seems like a day. And so you have to just commit to fix it. You know, one thing when we go through this legal process, the system wants you to have guilt and shame and, and depression, and fall on your knees and beg forgiveness. And that's what the system is designed to do. But if you really look at it, if you were a leader in sports, in the military, in business, you know, hey, that doesn't fix anything. You have to make a commitment to fix it. And the worst part of this entire debacle was my great employees my shareholders and our investors who had all believed in me, who had trusted me and had really invested in me. So they were all hurt through this process also. That's what always I can't understand with the regulators. Why, if they really had to do something, why didn't they hurt me? But why do they have to shut down a firm that creates a whole huge ripple effect of people? And we were in a Incredible supporter of our community and all of these charities. So everybody suffers together. So that's what you have writing on fixing, finding a solution. And so that was the commitment that I made. And that's how I got out of bed every morning. That's how I compartmentalized the bad parts and the and the terrible parts so that I could stay focused on a mission. And and that finally, a lot longer than I ever thought it would, but finally worked.
0: Yeah, that's great. And so I know, um, you know, last May, the halfway house called your home to make sure you were there. What happened?
1: Boy, <laughs> that was another mm-hmm. terrible event. Yes, we have uh, ankle monitors, and that can track you anywhere you are. But they also call you quite regularly during the day, uh, especially when you're at back at the house, if you leave for work, when you come back. And uh, many times that's in the middle of the night, uh, and and you have a landline in your home. People don't even remember mm-hmm. what a landline is, but yeah. <laughs> that's how that all works. And uh, in our area, the la- this, to make a long story short, it, it goes through the internet, our cable company that went down. So I didn't hear the phone call. So I missed it. And mm. um, this whole crazy chain of events happened. And even sending people to check on our house to see that I was there, but those people never, never rang the doorbell. And the whole thing turned into where they accused me of escape. But the whole time my ankle monitor that they were dinging showed that I was sleeping in my bed. Mm. So even though all the evidence that they had showed I was in my bed, they took me back and they uh, were sending me back to prison. And Mm. uh, over a course of about two months, I was sent to five different jails across the country in Oklahoma, in Mississippi, And again, by the grace of God, by a miracle, all of my friends who I was working for, and fortunately, we had been very successful over the last year for their companies, basically rallied uh, a team of people to prove that uh, I had not escaped, that that was silly. And uh, I I was released. And so many times, when these things happen, you know, you never are. So you lose hope. But again, mm. two months later, I made it home again. And the terrible part of that journey was my my wife, Ashley. We couldn't believe it. She was pregnant with uh, which is now our little baby girl, Carly. And so about a month before little Carly was born, I was released and made it home to be with her.
0: That's great. Congratulations um, on the baby. Thank you. It's um, uh, such a blessing. Um, so um, do you have any gr- regrets about how you handled things?
1: Well, I, I have a great I have many regrets and I, I have regrets that I didn't properly secure things for my family, number one. Mm. that I, and, and when I'm able to speak to these different groups of CEOs and business owners and entrepreneurs, I have a long list of all the mistakes I've made. And certainly one of them is even though I was teaching the rest of the world how to uh, set up their companies and manage money and secure their estate, i I let mine be all intertwined. So when the nuclear meltdown happened, you know, that hurt everybody. Also, I have great regret for the shareholders and the investors, you know, who invested in me. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. but, but I do look back and, and I'm asked this question almost daily, you know, would you have made the same decisions and, and, I still say yes. I still say yes because, I, you know, I don't think we come down on the planet to lead this life of luxury, retire and go fishing every day. I think it's all a journey and it's about overcoming fear and all of us are faced with these incredible challenges at different times. And so... I still believe that I would make the same decision. Now, my son was already going off to college at this time. If I would have had small children, certainly I probably would not have made that decision. But it it was something that I had to stand up for what we believed was right. And and I think if we teach our children all of these great ideals of character and integrity – and then, when we ourselves are faced with this monumental challenge, maybe the greatest challenge of our life, and we take the easy path, then everything we taught them means nothing. And and that was the decision I made. And and I believe I I would hope that I would have the courage to make the same decision.
0: Yeah, that's something. Um, that's something my dad taught me as well. Um, my dad had to sue one of the companies that he worked for. And, um, you know, he used to say it was the principle of the fact, you know, and he wanted justice served. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to make those difficult, difficult decisions to, to stand by your principles. Tell us a little bit about this love story that was going on during this time. I know that you, your first marriage w- w- when, when the company went down, um, but tell right. us about sort of the, the good mm-hmm. stuff that came out of this whole experience.
1: Right. Um, Yes. Unfortunately, that is true. That seems to be part of uh, when when all those terrible things are going on. But the interesting story is that after I was in prison for about eight months, I received a love letter, (laughs) and uh, the love letter was from Ashley. And Ashley had worked in one of our companies, and we had remained friends over the years. And I received a letter, and it said, uh, "Hey, I never told you this, <laughs> but I think I love you, and I'm going to support you, and I'm going to stand by you until we fix all this." And and I was in shock, and uh, wow. of, of course, you know, we thought that uh, it would be 12 months till this was all fixed, but she came up to visit me in New Jersey. And which is a terrible experience for families to try to visit. And it's it's incredibly burdensome on them. But uh, she came up to visit me and then she proceeded to visit me every month for the next six years and stand by me. And until uh, one day about uh, near our seventh year, she picked me up and brought me home. So she tells everybody it's really all just a love story. (laughs) Which it really is. And, and again, I can't, uh, I can't explain that story. I like to say uh, the universe works in mysterious ways, and you just can't explain some things. But uh, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet.
0: So I know that you, you know, you sort of talk about you, you think that there's sort of this larger purpose in life, and, and you're brought down on this universe for for a purpose. What do you think your
1: larger purpose is? Boy, that's a great story. I'm still trying to figure that out. But I will say, I think you have to believe in some grand design. And whatever that is to you, if you don't believe in that, you just don't have the hope or the inspiration to get through 99.9% rejections and trauma and, and terror. And I believed That I may not understand the universe, but uh, through meditation and a lot of other introspective work that I did in my, in while I was in prison, it gave me hope that if I just keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing, that one day it's going to be okay. And I think you have to have that. Another, you know, human trait that I think you have to keep. You have to believe, or someone else has to believe in you that you're a good person. That deep mm. down you're okay because the world, especially today, will destroy you. And especially if you were at the top of the mountain, you know, they will mm. put you at the very bottom of the ocean and you'll look up from the bottom of the ocean and you'll believe there is no possible way you'll ever make it back to air. So you have to keep the small little bit of self-belief, self-confidence deep down inside you, or you will be destroyed. You will have depression and despair. And I believe that that comes from before these events happen to us. We have to take on challenge after challenge after challenge. We have to keep saying yes and take on adventures and opportunity. Because what that does, that builds confidence in us. And whether that's in sports, relationships, business, the military, whatever that would be, that builds confidence in us. And then when life, you know, takes a big whack at that, we have to have enough in there that we can say, you know what, you know, I'm going to make it back. I'm going to get off the canvas again. And, mm. and I think that's the critical part. We have to believe in goodness. We have to believe in abundance versus scarcity. And we have to believe that if I'm a good person and I do everything, God helps those who help themselves, eventually one day, and it's going to probably be way longer than I want it to be, we're going to be okay.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean, I just think that we have so much to learn from you, Jeff. And um, you know, there are folks out there in this in in this industry, and and you know, outside of this industry, that um, you know maybe have lost their jobs, you know, lost loved ones, had legal problems, um, you know, got barred uh, from this industry. What do you sort of say to those people? I mean, what? It, I mean, it does seem like. Your story can help people sort of come out of those dark times, I think.
1: Yes, I, I appreciate that so much is through my book, Just One More, through my speaking, and a consulting and coaching and advising. That's, that's really my mission now. and And what I believe I can do because of I always say to everybody don't worry about making a mistake cuz I've made more than any human on the planet. I believe I try to help people so business owners in the financial world or in all these other industries with tangible actionable takeaways of you know here's a list of 11 things I did wrong and and mm-hmm. here's what I here's how I would change those today on the on the way up, here's all these things I would have changed. And when uh, the black swan showed up and knocked on my front door, here's what I w- would now do differently. So, unfortunately, I have this very tangible, actionable list to help other people. But also on the other side, yeah, it's like sports. You know, one part is knowing how to shoot a jump shot, the other part is Do you have the drive and the determination and the will to get up and down that court, you know, more than your competitor? So the other side is you've got to have the hope. You've got to have the skill set that gives you power, that gives you confidence, and it gives you very tangible ways that you can take on Goliath. Because so many times with big corporations or big government, We're really David, and we have to have the confidence to take on Goliath. Because as you said, even with your father, so many people don't do it because it just seems impossible. But I I tell them all, listen, every day people told me I was crazy, crazy, crazy. It's impossible for me to fix Mm. this. It's impossible for me to win. And you know what? It wasn't impossible
0: yeah, it's just um, it's such a great story. And um, I'm afraid we're just about out of time. But I'd like to thank my guest, Jeff Martinovich, for being on the podcast and being so vulnerable about his experiences. Jeff, just thank you so much for for sharing your story with me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Diana. Uh, it is an amazing podcast, and I love the stories. And I love how you intertwine, you know, really, business things that you know make us all better but also the life issues that help us get through it all
0: yeah i think uh, and i think your story in particular is really gonna offer hope to a lot of a lot of folks out there if you'd like to reach out to jeff if you'd like to get more information you can go to his website com, and we'll put this in the show notes below and if you yourself have a struggle, uh, you wish to share your experiences and, and help others in such situ- uh, similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton@informa.com. at I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton re- reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.